If you Google the words domestic violence statistics, you'll find some very sobering information. Did you know that according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime? And when they say severe physical violence, they're including examples of being beaten, burned, and even strangled. I worked for a short time in a domestic violence court as a victim's advocate, and I can tell you that that stat I just quoted is not an exaggeration. We're going to talk about a case that shows domestic violence in its most extreme form on this episode of The Unlovely Truth, so please be aware of that if this is a sensitive topic for you. Now, if you think that nobody in your church or your family or your group of friends is being abused, I hate to tell you that you're wrong. And just leaving isn't always an option. Our guest today knows that, and he's doing something about it. You can too. I've said this so many times, but I truly believe that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around, and we will talk about how you can do just that. This is Season 4, Episode 8, and I'm your host, Private Investigator Lori Morrison. Our book this week is Love Lies, a true story of marriage and murder in the suburbs. Our guest is John Peace. We'll talk with him in a little bit. Crime reporter Amanda Lamb never thought that one of her own acquaintances would end up the subject of the types of stories that she covered. But in July of 2008, a woman from her circle vanished. Amanda first heard the buzz about it at her daughter's swim meet. Rumors were swirling that Nancy Cooper had gone for a run the day before and no one had seen her since. Nancy and her husband Brad were both from Canada and they met when they were both working for IBM in Calgary. Their plans to get married were sped up when Brad got a job in Raleigh, North Carolina. Once married and settled in the U.S., they began living in the affluent Raleigh suburb of Cary. I've been there several times, and it's a beautiful place to settle down and a very safe place to raise a family. And that's just what Nancy and Brad did. They had two adorable little girls, and life looked good when Brad told people that Nancy went out for a run and never came home. The first person to really raise the alarm was Nancy's good friend, Jessica Adam. The two women were supposed to meet that morning. And Jessica knew that there was trouble in the Cooper's marriage. She knew that Nancy wanted to go back to Canada and take the girls with her. So Jessica called 911, and police were sent to Nancy's home to talk to Brad. Another friend called Nancy's twin sister, Krista, back in Canada. Krista had no idea that anything was wrong and quickly called Brad. To each question that Krista asked him, Brad responded, Nancy went for a run and she hasn't come back. Krista had to be the one to call the rest of her family to let them know what was happening. Brad hadn't called anyone. Authorities and volunteers began to search for Nancy. The neighborhood the Coopers lived in was thick with trees and shrubs. They thought maybe Nancy had gotten off of her normal running path and she was hurt, but alive. That hope was crushed two days later when a man walking his dog called 911. He'd spotted a body in a ditch filled with water. The next day, it was confirmed that the body was Nancy Cooper. At a local prayer service, Nancy's family could not understand why Brad didn't come talk to them. 
That's when Nancy's mother said she knew. Authorities searched Nancy and Brad's home and their cars, and Brad got busy lawyering up. Nancy's family filed for emergency custody of Nancy's small daughters. During the custody hearings, details of the Coopers' troubled marriage came out. Brad had not only been verbally abusive to Nancy in front of their children, but he'd also been unfaithful. He'd also abused Nancy financially, keeping control of their money and allowing her very little access to anything, forcing her to often borrow money for gas and groceries from her family. Brad and Nancy were both still Canadian citizens, and only Brad had a green card that allowed him to work. After telling Nancy that she could just go ahead and go back to Canada and take the girls, Brad suddenly changed his mind and hid the girls' passports from Nancy. Apparently, he had learned that if Nancy kept the girls, he'd have to pay alimony and child support. One of Nancy's friends shared that Nancy had told her how much she was afraid of Brad and that Nancy often slept in the girls' rooms with her car keys in her pants' pockets and the bedroom door locked. Many of Nancy's friends knew that Brad controlled who Nancy could see and when. And at least once, Brad had taken Nancy's cell phone away from her to, quote, punish her when she hadn't done what he wanted. Hearing all of this, the judge agreed that the children needed to be with Nancy's family, at least temporarily. Nancy's memorial service was well attended, but it did seem strange that one person who didn't come was Brad. Through his attorney, he announced that he felt that his being there would be a distraction, whatever that means. Now, I'm sorry, but that's just weird to me, not only as an investigator, but as a human being. Some of Nancy's friends who had seen Brad's behavior toward her had begged Nancy to move in with them. Now, her family knew there were issues in the marriage, but they didn't know how bad things really were. So at first, they encouraged Nancy to try to make her marriage work. But as she opened up more and more and shared how Brad was treating her, they fully supported her plans to leave. But none of them recognized that this situation had such a potential for violence. On September 29th of 2008, the results of Nancy's autopsy were released. Her death had been ruled a homicide, most likely by strangulation. Another hearing in the custody case was coming up on October 16th. And in that hearing, the family's lawyers flat out stated that they believed that Brad was the only suspect in Nancy's murder. Brad didn't bother to testify to try to get his girls back. Then after taking time to review the evidence presented by both sides, the judge ruled that Nancy's family would retain temporary custody of Nancy's daughters. Just 11 days after that hearing, Brad was indicted for Nancy's murder and then swiftly arrested. At least one neighbor clapped as they watched authorities put Brad in a squad car. At the trial, prosecutors laid out what they thought had happened to Nancy. There had been no early morning jog. Nancy had been attacked, strangled, and her body dumped long before daylight. They believed that Brad cleaned up the house, and then, using his skills as an expert in phone technology, he faked a call from Nancy's cell phone to his to make it look like she was still alive the morning her friend noticed she was missing. The trial jury agreed with the prosecution, and they convicted Brad of first-degree murder and sentenced him to life in prison. Of course, Brad appealed the verdict, and he was granted a new trial. He ended up accepting a plea to second-degree murder with a sentence of 12 to 15 years in prison. Part of that plea agreement required Brad to give up any rights he had to his children. Brad was released from prison in late 2020 and deported back to Canada. 
One good thing that's come out of this terrible tragedy is that Nancy's family started a program to help victims of domestic violence. It gives them resources so that they can escape abusive relationships, which can be much harder than most of us realize. Our guest today is also trying to provide resources for victims of domestic violence to escape their abusers. John Peace is one of the founders of Safe Haven Services, where they provide safe, secure digital storage for emergency money, official documents, and copies of important photos. I'm going to let him share more about this amazing program right after this. I'll bet that many of you are asking yourselves, why don't victims of domestic violence just leave? Many have had their lives or their children's lives threatened if they leave their abuser. Often, this is a familiar way of life to the victim, having seen relatives and friends experience the exact same thing. The vast majority are financially dependent on their abuser, and sadly for some, their faith communities pressure them to stay, often with tragic results. Let's ask ourselves a tough question. Is an intolerant view of divorce better than enabling an abusive marriage? I've put a link in the show notes to a thought-provoking article that asks, is your church or denomination safe for abuse victims? Now, of course, I want everybody to understand this article is speaking in generalities, so we're not trying to dog on any particular churches. But if your denomination is on the list, maybe it's time for you to get involved to see why and find out how you can be sure that victims in your circle will feel safer. Now, let's have a chat with our guest, John Peace. John, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This is a topic that's really dear to my heart. It's such a widespread problem that flies under the radar. People, I think, don't realize how widespread this is. And so you have a resource that I think is very unique. I am not a techie. So for those of us who are not, give us kind of that high-level review of, of what your resource does, how it works, and all that. Well, first of all, it's my pleasure to be here. Let me clarify this to you and the audience. I'm not the tech person in this project. My business partner is. I'm what they call a non-technical founder. I kind of had the idea, and I was very fortunate that I had an old high school alumni and college alumni gentleman who I know who was in the tech industry, and is really a computer genius. Um show my age back in the late 80s and early 90s. He was one of those guys that was building home computers from Radio Shack. If, if you're young out there, they're going, what's Radio Shack? But uh, So <laughs> I didn't age myself right there, but he was building computers. So, I mean, truly, he he's made a, a nice career for himself. And I was very fortunate to have him in my kind of circle to even make this project happen. And we're looking at launching live sometime this upcoming March. We're in a, what do they call pre-marketing stages right now, just trying to get the word out that, hey, when we launch live, we're going to be offering this service. And get back to your question about what does it do? Okay, Safe Haven Services, in essence, is we rent digital security boxes. Okay, if you think about your local bank and you go in there and rent a physical box from them to put your you know, important papers, life insurance papers, uh, bank statements, deeds. And in, in a lot of cases, people keep emergency monies in their safety deposit box down at the local bank. 
I live in a rural area of Virginia, and we went through a lot of bank closures, and I had to move my mom's safety deposit box stuff several times. And the idea came in, gosh, we have to be able to offer this digitally for people. And I contacted my business partner, Tom, and we kind of started working on it. Now we're about two and a half, three years later. I think he's got 10,000 lines of code in the software. I mean, that shows you the work that goes into it. And we're looking at launching next month. And of course, the second question we get asked is, well, who would need a digital safety security box to put small amounts of money and important documents? And one of the things in our research, and, uh, and unfortunately, I'd had a little bit of personal experience with this with family court and going through a divorce myself. But when we started doing the research, the biggest people that we found that needed the service was victims of domestic violence. So we started looking at the research that was out there, and it depends on which research you look at. 95 to 98% of the people state the reason they stay in a toxic relationship in a domestic violence situation is due to financial abuse. Okay, and, hang on just one second. Yeah. Give me that percentage again, because that is just unbelievable to me. I want everybody to hear it again. 95 to 98%, and this actually came from the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Theirs is actually 98%. They say the reason they stay in a toxic relationship is due to financial abuse. And what financial abuse is, that means that abuser controls the money, controls the checking accounts, controls the spending. And and it was almost like a light bulb went off to me going, gosh, you know, if you ever watch these TV shows and you see these cops, you know, they go to that same house three or four times to a domestic violence call. And you see that cop go, gosh, why don't these people just leave? Well, beside, you know, there, there's a psychological reasons, you know, whether it be trauma bonding, fear, and other things, but there's also a physical barrier is they have no money. And even though they might work and they might actually be middle class, might even be upper class, if you don't have access to your money, you're trapped. And mm-hmm. just think about leaving your life with nothing but a shirt on the back or with a bunch of kids. How am I going to feed them tomorrow if we leave? So you can imagine that barrier. And that's why they say 95 to 98% stay in a toxic relationship is due to financial abuse. And so with Safe Haven Services and these digital security boxes, I'll go into a little bit how they work. You can go into a library and set up your digital security box with us. You only have to use your own phone or your own home computer. That's important because if you've got an abuser that snoops on your record, snoops on your phone, snoops you know, on your private business, then you might want to look at doing this elsewhere. You could go in, pretty much set up your digital security box with us, just like you would your online banking. The setup's very, very similar. You go through your logins, your passwords, your security questions and stuff. And then once you've got that set up with us, you can just deposit money into that digital security box at your convenience, whenever you want to. Whenever you think you can kind of squirrel away $20, $10, whatever that might be, it's as easy as logging into your security box. We can take debit, credit cards. And you can put that payment into your box. And it's private, very private, and very discreet. Let's say you use your debit card. You won't put $20 into your digital security box that only you know about. Well, the billing on that report is what they call brown bag billing. It just shows up as a simple online merchant purchase. Doesn't show as a withdrawal. Doesn't show as a cash advance that might alert the abuser, hey, you know, my victim's trying to squirrel money away. And, you know, of course, they want to prevent that. We're also going to offer the option 
of cash. You could walk into a Western Union or MoneyGram and also put $20 into your security box. It's very discreet, very private, not completely secret, but hopefully there's enough uh, discretion there to where if the abuser starts snooping into it, you can explain it away. Well, I bought something online. Once that victim gathers up what they think is enough escape money, also, you can load up your important documents that you need to take with you and stuff. So when you escape, get to a safe, secure location. You can set up a bank account in your new area or new place that, of your residence. Download that money. Download those important documents and start your life. I think people forget, too, you know, the money is certainly a huge component, but you're talking about documents as well. Yes. Abusers know that to start a new life, you need access to your social security card. You might need access to a birth certificate. They're going to hold on to all that, too. Yes. So if, if you can get copies of all of that important stuff where you can access it, that's huge. Yes. And most states, and we're very fortunate that the states have progressed, most states will take photocopies of documents nowadays. So you could upload it at your discretion, upload, you know, secretly. And that way, when you do make your escape, you have those important documents. and Also, you have some emergency money. One thing I always try to do is give people ways that they can help these folks. When your abuser is monitoring your computer use, your tablet use, your cell phone use, be that person that says, you know, hey, come use my computer. Yes. And help them out to the extent that you can. Try to kick in 10 or $20 every now and then to help them build that escape nest egg faster. Oh, absolutely. And, and one of the things, you know, we just want to offer that self-help tool so victims can start accumulating that escape fund and also start planning. You know, it needs to be planned out. And our whole purpose with Safe Haven Services is to offer a self-help tool to victims so they can leave sooner and safer. Another thing in doing a lot of the research and stuff, unfortunate thing about domestic court is it takes money to hire a good lawyer. I've interviewed so many people when you hear these tragic stories of what happened to them in, in domestic court, what happened to them in family court. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm going, man, if you had just had the right lawyer, so much would be different. Now, I'm not going to say you would have gotten exactly what you wanted, but it takes money. Interviewing some of these victims and interviewing these therapists, they talk about their victim not having any money, having to go to court by themselves. And then, especially if you're higher up on a social economic ladder, the abuser has all the money, fight them. They'll just bury them with what they call legal abuse. They just mm-hmm. keep filing, filing, filing. If you're in domestic court, you need resources. For sure. People need to have access to legal services. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Without money, you don't have that access. Oh, absolutely. And, and can you imagine the fear in the victims knowing you're just going to leave and you're on your own and you don't have you know any resources to your name? And if you don't have the important documents with you, you can't get a job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certain areas have domestic violence shelters that can help them through all this. But so much of rural America, um, we only have those services. I mean, we have some great organizations within our county that do as much as they can, but, you know, their resources are very limited due to funding. So these people are just so much on their own. And like I say, we, we just want to offer a service that will allow them to start their planning and also gather up resources. 
it's going to take time. It's going to take money. And the sooner they can do that, the better they'll be. We just want to try to help them sooner and safer. And you and I talked about something before we started recording that I want to bring back up. It's not the type of service that you can advertise very easily because of the nature of what you're doing and you're trying to kind of keep it under the radar. So for people that are listening, if they have a contact in, let's say, a domestic violence shelter or a domestic violence court or anything where they can help get the word out to people who need your services, how can people best get a hold of you and give you contact information that you can then turn around and be able to share what you're doing? Currently, we have our website up. It's not fully operational. Like I say, we hope by this time next month, we're fully operational so they can contact us through the website. We've been talking with some law enforcement domestic violence prevention units, and some of the bigger cities have these. And I'll send this to you, Lori. We've come up with look just like a, a regular size business card. And the only thing that's on there is our QR code that goes straight to our website. And that's the only right. thing on there. And and the reason we, we were working with the law enforcement on this is when that officer comes to that house the third or fourth time and he identifies the victim. And that's hard to do, as, as we, we've seen on TV with the Gabby Petito case and all that. And I feel for these officers. But when they do identify, hey, this person is a victim of domestic violence, a, a victim of financial abuse. They can hand them that card. There's nothing else on that card. So if the abuser finds it, hopefully the victim will go, oh, I picked that up somewhere. I don't even know what it is. So it's a little bit plausible, you know, explain it in a way. Because the last thing that victim wants is that abuser to know the victim's planning on leaving or, or is working towards leaving because that could be dangerous for them. One of our, our mottos was we wanted to develop a tool with Safe Haven that you could give these people a self-help tool instead of just a brochure. I'm of the Presbyterian faith, and we have a little motto in our, in our little local church. So the best way to help yourself is by helping others. Absolutely love that. And it's going to take all of us working together yes. to make a dent in this problem. Because I think, especially in the church, we like to just focus on happy, happy, good, good. It's all nice. And we don't realize that there are not only abuse victims sitting in that sanctuary with us, there are abusers sitting there too. And some of those might be the hardest to recognize. Mm -hmm. You know, the people next to us that you think, you know, on social media has that perfect life and all that, but there might be a victim there that needs to escape. I saw on your LinkedIn page you had reshared. This was another amazing statistic was how many mass shootings they can track back to domestic violence was in their life. Mm-hmm. And they say 50% of the mass shootings that we're seeing, the, the perpetrator came from a domestic violence household. So even if it doesn't affect you personally, it can affect your life in a negative way. The more we can lower domestic violence, the better it is for society. Oh, for sure. And I saw a study that had an even higher correlation with serial killers. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. So we have the ripple effect of crime. You know, we think about you've got your criminal here, you've got one, maybe two victims right here. (laughs) But the truth is, it's like throwing a stone in a pond. It reaches out and it reaches out and it reaches out and it affects so many people. And multi-generational people. I mean, it yes. affects the next generation. 
And I think, too, as the big C church, I know that there are individual churches that do a great job with this sort of stuff, but I'm talking kind of collectively. In America, I don't know that the church has necessarily handled domestic violence really well. Because again, we want our, everything's fine, everything's good. I've heard stories of pastors saying, well, we don't need to talk about domestic violence here because we don't have that problem in our church. <laughs> you can't see him, but I can. He just yeah. dropped his head. Like, yeah, we, we, we've heard that story before. And also, we've heard from a young age, divorce is bad. But also, spousal abuse is bad. Financial abuse is bad. Child abuse is bad. Let's go back to Mosaic Law. Moses permitted divorce. It doesn't say he advocated for it, but he permitted it. it. Yeah, Exactly. He permitted it because our hearts were hard. We were a stubborn people and people were getting hurt. That was the whole idea behind, okay, men, you can divorce your wives. Give her a certificate of divorce so that she can remarry because you're not taking good care of her. You're the one wanting to get rid of her. So I think when we look at that entire story and what Jesus is saying, no, divorce is not great. It's never the goal, but it is sometimes necessary because our hearts are hard. We live in a fallen world. The only real negative comment I got was a religious therapist. And she said, oh, well, you're just promoting financial infidelity. But caught me off guard a little bit. But then I started thinking about it. No, we're not. Because let me tell you why. Because the abusers already have secret bank accounts. The abusers are already controlling the money. They have no need for our service because they already control the situation. The only thing we're offering is a self-help tool to those victims. We're offering a tool that they can use to help escape a very toxic situation. So we didn't create the problem. We didn't create financial infidelity. It's already there. The only thing we're trying to do is level the playing field for the victims and give them some tools to escape their toxic situation. I think people forget when we're talking about abuse, we're not talking about not getting to live your best life. We're talking about women not only being beaten, but in a lot of cases being killed. And it can be men. It's about 80-20. Now, granted, it's 80 men being abusers. Some of the research we've done and talking to some of the therapists that actually work with the male victims, you say, well, gosh, how's a six foot one guy that's 200 pounds be a victim to domestic violence or financial abuse? Well, they can, and it's usually through the children. The woman says, gosh, if you don't do what I say, I'll leave you. You know, your daughter or son, they'll have a new daddy before the year's out, and I'll move as far away as I can. The men, just in the research we've looked at and also talking to the therapist, it's usually the physical part. They're just using their alpha male dominance to scare the victim. I interviewed a therapist and we were talking about exactly what you're describing. She would talk to people in her therapy practice and they would deny that their abuser physically threatened them. Mm -hmm. But then they would say things like, Well, he would tell me we needed to sit down and have a talk, and he would put his handgun on the coffee table between us. That's threatening. Yeah, what's more threatening than that? It's time we as believers say, enough is enough. We've got to do something to help. Just like you and your business partner have done. 
sent you the little meme earlier, the Desmond Tutu saying, instead of rescuing people from drowning in the river, we need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And that's our goal. What's available to victims now are only available after it gets so bad. You know, when the police get called or domestic services gets called, it's the help we have currently in this country. And the only thing that we at Safe Haven Services wanted to do was offer a tool that was a little bit upstream of going, hey, you've already decided this is not going to work out. It's gotten to that point and give them a self-help tool so they can start planning, escaping their situation. Not only do you need a better life, you deserve a better life than getting abused. And with the money and resources and planning, we just hope that they can do it sooner and safer before it gets totally terrible and violent and physically abusive. I want everybody to check out the show notes because I will have links so you can check out Safe Haven Services. I'll have some other links that will help you if you're a victim of domestic violence or if you know someone who is. We really need to jump into this, folks. Please share this episode. Let people know that this new service is going to be available to them. It is going to make a difference in people's lives. John, thank you so much, not just for joining us today, but for putting this amazing service together. Well, it's been our pleasure. And I hope people understand that one of the best ways you can help yourself is by helping others. And trust me, we've already been blessed personally just by working on this project. Um, we hope we can help a lot of people. Hope I can come back on your show and say, hey, we're helping people in all 50 states. We've been contacted through social media from Canada and Europe wanting to know, you know, if we can offer the, the same service. You know, of course, I have to kind of pump the brakes going, hey, we're trying to get this launched in the United States. <laughs> and plus, we'll have a few bugs. We will be safe and secure. We're bonded and insured. We're using blockchain technology, so their money will be safe and secure as far as in our website and in our data center. We look forward to trying to help as many people as we can, and, and uh, maybe we can make it grow into other countries also. I would absolutely love to have you back again so that we can share your successes and get the word out to more people. Thank you again, John. Thank you. Abusers who call themselves followers of Christ often use Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 as a way to justify their abuse. But we have to remember these verses don't just stand alone. We need to continue reading and investigate verses 25 through 30 as well. So let's read that from the NIV. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. God was very specific that men are supposed to love their wives in the same way that they love and take care of their very own bodies. Abuse in any form has no place in a marriage or any relationship. A healthy marital relationship mirrors the relationship between Christ and his church. Neither God nor his word permits or condones abusive behavior in a marriage or any other relationship. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 
799-7233 and check out what help is available from Safe Haven Services. No one deserves to live a life of being abused. If you found this episode helpful and informative, be sure you check out links to some earlier ones that I've put in the show notes. I've had so many amazing guests and you will not want to miss the resources and information that they have shared with us. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 